The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Amen. And that uh, call to rest, to trust, to hope in the Lord is in circumstances that aren't always so restful. <laughs> We're also called to rest in the Lord even during the times of, of trial and difficulty. And uh, that's what we'll see today in our teaching through Daniel chapter 3. So if you would, take your Bibles and open up to Daniel uh, chapter 3. Thanks again, uh, Miles, for that. Daniel chapter 3. And this week, we turn our attention to one of the, the most well-known and one of the most beloved narratives in the entire Bible. This is the story of the fiery furnace. Uh, the fiery furnace, it's a story that many of you have grown up with. Uh, it's so well-known that it's a cultural expression. Uh, today, when people talk about being thrown into the fire or uh, being thrown into the fur- furnace, they're actually making reference to Daniel chapter 3, whether they know it or not. And as believers, we often make reference to Daniel chapter 3 as an illustration of faith in the face of adversity. Uh, The faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is an exemplary model faith. And their courage is enshrined in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, where their faith is said to quench the power of fire. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 34. But the great lesson in Daniel chapter 3 is not what their faith did, but who their faith was in. That's, that's the big lesson out of Daniel chapter 3. Who was their faith in? Who was their faith placed in? And if you pay attention to the details of the narrative, that's exactly the point that we're driven to. Uh, Daniel chapter 3 focuses our attention on the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the great lesson is really a lesson about worship. Look at Daniel chapter 3. Look down at verse 28 with me. It says, Nebuchadnezzar responded... And said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So it's not about them, it's about their God. Who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies. Why? So as not to serve or worship any God except their own God. Daniel 3 is a message about worship. Worshiping our great God. And the question that you should be asking yourself is, we're walking through Daniel chapter 3, is who is worthy of my worship? Who is worthy of my worship? This is a worship war because you're going to give your ultimate allegiance to somebody, even if that person, that somebody is a golden statue of yourself. You're going to give your allegiance to somebody. Somebody is going to take the number one spot in your life, and there is only one being who deserves to be there, and that's the God of the Bible. So let's take a look at Daniel chapter 3. We'll start at Verse 1, the dedication of false worship in Babylon. Daniel chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Why don't you follow with me as I read. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the province, provinces to come to the dedication 
of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, and the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, uh, this Sunday, this Lord's Day, as we always do. Now, Father, uh, knowing that we need your help to understand your word, to apply your word to our lives. Now, Father, this is your truth. And now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and to apply your truth to our lives. Help us not to, to walk away from this text unchanged, just leaving it as a historical account. But, Father, I pray that we would draw it close to ourselves, that we find the lessons for us in here. And, Father, that we would dedicate to you hearts of worship. Father, we pray that you would be glorified and that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. First point, the desire for false worship. The desire for false worship. Uh, the last time that we saw Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, back in Daniel chapter 2, uh, we remember that he was terrified. He was terrified in chapter 2. You remember that? In chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And in verse 3 of chapter uh, uh, 2, it says that his spirit was anxious to understand the dream because he was confident that this dream that he had in chapter 2 was a divine message from God, and it was. God was communicating to him that his kingdom, as well as the kingdoms of mankind, would be pulverized by a supernatural kingdom, a kingdom that would crush all the kingdoms of the earth at the same time, and not a trace of these kingdoms would be left. And we understand that kingdom to come to be the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming kingdom was, was pictured as a stone that would fill the whole earth, and the kingdoms of men were to be pictured here, are pictured here as a statue, the statue that represents the kingdoms of mankind in chapter 2. That's what he had a dream of. He was terrified of that dream. He was terrified about what that dream meant. And then he turns right around in chapter 3, and he sets up a statue. And what does this statue represent? It represents the kingdoms of men. The, the word that's used for image in chapter 3 and verse 1 is the very same word that was used for the statue back in chapter 2. Verse 31, 32, 34, 35, the very same word. So this, this image that he saw crushed, now he attempts to set it up. And the very thing that he was terrified of in chapter 2, that his kingdom would come to an end, now he turns around in chapter 3 and acts like uh, the, the news that he got uh, is insignificant, not the slightest concern, because he's now trying to set up his kingdom. He's actually flaunting the power of his kingdom before men. I mean, what, what happened to that sense of fear that you had back in chapter 2? I mean, your sleep left you, you were anxious, and now all of a sudden you're going to puff your chest out and act like you're on top of the world? The Puritan author, John Owen, he says this, he says, as a traveler in his way, meeting with a violent storm of thunder and rain, immediately turns out of his way to some house or tree for shelter, but yet this does not cause him to give up his journey. So as soon as the storm is over, he returns to his way and progress again. And John Owen says, so it is with a man in bondage to sin. As soon as the storm is over, so that they begin to, to wear out that sense of terror that was upon them, they return to their former course in the service of sin again. And we know people like that, don't we? 
when they have some near-death experience, like an overdose, a car accident, a medical emergency. You know, they make all kinds of promises then, right? Because the storm is coming. Oh, Lord, that was such a close call. Oh, Lord, I I can't believe that you saved me out of the clutches of of death. I was so close. I was on the brink of death. Oh, Lord, I'm I'm done with my old life. I'll, I'll never do that again. I'm not going to turn back to that sin again. It was leading me to destruction. Lord, I'm done. From this day on, I'm turning over a new leaf. Like, Lord, you can, you can have my life. From, from now on, I'm going to serve God. Like, like sign me up. You know, you need a deacon in the church, you know, I'll, I'll sign up for that. You know, I'm, I'm here to serve. But as soon as the storm is over, as soon as the terror is gone, they go right back to following that same course of sin that they were on before. They turn right back to the path. As Proverbs 26, 11 says, like a dog that returns to its own vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And this is Nebuchadnezzar. He's a fool repeating his folly. That's Nebuchadnezzar. He was given the warning about his kingdom coming to an end, and now he tries to set up a kingdom that's going to last anyway. And this kingdom is built all around himself. And that's the clear implication from what we read in Daniel chapter 3. Back in chapter 2, we were told that the image in his dream was a uh, had a head of gold, remember that? The head of gold, the breast and arms of silver, and kind of worked down the, the, the statue. And Daniel chapter 2, verse 38 says, you are the head of gold. You're, you're the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. And now he turns around and he makes a statue, and he makes the whole statue out of gold. Well, what do you think that statue was representing? That statue was representing himself. This is me, this is my kingdom. I'm not only the head of gold, I'm the whole body of gold. In verse 15 He doesn't say, uh, what God is there who can deliver you out of my God's hands? That's not what he says. Listen to what he says. He says, what God is there that can deliver you out of my hands? What is he doing? He's putting himself on the level of God. What God is there that can deliver you from me? Forget the gods. I'm talking about me. What God is there that can deliver you from me? And then over and over again in chapter three, the the statue is referred to as the image that he set up. Eight times. He set up. He set up. He set up. The the focus of the statue is him. I'm the one who set it up. I'm the one who's going to demand worship. And the statue is a representative of me and my kingdom. And it was not uncommon for pagan kings to be deified. In uh, chapter six and verse seven, remember uh, King Darius signed an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides himself for 30 days would be cast into the lion's den. Remember that? He's setting himself up. I mean, you think you're really going to answer the prayers of the entire kingdom? But he sets himself up. Anybody who prays to anybody else besides me, he's deifying himself. He's making himself into a God. Chapter 7, verse 25, Daniel speaks of a king who would speak out against the Most High. Over in Acts chapter 12, we find Herod who accepted praise that was given to him. The people kept crying out, oh, it's the voice of a God and not a man. And Herod's just kind of taking it in, just taking it in until the Lord struck him and had worms that devoured his body. But, but it's not uncommon for kings to demand ultimate allegiance. It happens all the time. One author in a chapter titled, When the State Becomes God, he writes this, those of us who live in Western democracies may respond by saying, but that was a totalitarian extreme. It could never happen to us. Well, perhaps we should remind ourselves of the situation in just the past century, when in Albania, Russia, China, and Cambodia, acknowledgement of the leader's effectively divine status was mandatory. And we would be naive to think that the 
governments never desire the praise and ultimate allegiance that would go to God. We would be naive to think that. To think, oh, that, that'll never happen to us. That'll never happen here. Over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's a future man of lawlessness who's predicted who will arise over government. And listen to this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. It says that he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's, that's the end game here. The, the end game of a depraved government, depraved leaders, is that they want the seat of worship. And it's always been this, this kind of push to kind of you know, pull religion and, and, and politics together, the, the, the state and the, the religion together, because they want ultimate allegiance over everything. They don't want anything lying outside of their jurisdiction. And Nebuchadnezzar here is clearly desiring more honor for himself than what a king deserves. Look again at chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. A cubit is about uh, 18 inches, the, the length from the tip of your finger down to your elbow, about 18 inches. It was uh, about 60 cubits, it says here, 60 cubits in length, which would have been about 90 feet 90 feet tall. Think about nine basketball hoops all stacked one on top of another. That's the height of this statue. Think about a, a house that's six to seven stories up. Like that's the height of this statue. And the base of the statue would have been nine feet in diameter, about the, the length of a small car. And it was completely covered in gold. And in order to be a golden statue, it didn't have to be solid gold but it would be completely gold-plated, just like the Ark of the Covenant uh, was constructed of wood and it was overlaid with gold. In a similar way, the statue would have been constructed and then completely overlaid with gold. That's still a lot of gold. <laughs> a 90-foot statue, nine feet diameter, completely covered from head to toe with gold. I mean, we're, we're talking about tons of gold here. And here we have this statue that he sets up on the plain of Dura, the province of Babylon. This wasn't in the city of Babylon where it would have to compete with the other temples. This is out in the plain by itself. And actually, there's an archaeologist by the name of Opert who excavated a site about 12 miles south of the city of ancient Babylon known as the Mounds of Dura. And he uncovered a rectangular brick structure about 45 feet square, 20 feet tall, and it's, it was said that it may have formed the pedestal of a colossal statue, like the pedestal that the Statue of Liberty sits on top of. There are these pedestals that are out there in the middle of nowhere. And they say it was likely that these pedestals were used to support the structure of these statues. They might have found the actual site where the statue was located. And it's important here that he calls everybody. So important he calls everybody together. Look again at verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent were to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. There it goes again. We know that Daniel served in the king's court, according to chapter 2 and verse 48, so apparently he was uh, maybe away on business or something else during this time, because uh, we don't find Daniel anywhere in chapter 3. But all the leaders of the province, which is where Dan, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worked, all of those people are all called in. This is the political, you know, who's who's list of, of Babylon. 
You know, think about your state, your county, your city officials, all getting together for one event. This is the, the political who's who. Everybody's getting together for this red carpet event. The satraps were the rulers over the provinces, kind of like your counties. Prefects were directly under the satraps. Governors over regional districts. Counselors were the advisors to the king. Treasurers took care of the money. The judges were the experts in the law. And the magistrates were like the police force. Like every kind of city, county official all brought together. Basically, the entire government is shut down. And what was so important that all the official business of the state had to be shut down? Why did it all have to come to a standstill? So they could see his image. (laughs) We're bringing you all in. We're shutting everything down so you can come and see my image. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 3, it says, Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. That's it. Nebuchadnezzar has his own national holiday. Everybody come out and celebrate me. Because Nebuchadnezzar is convinced that the best way to unify his kingdom and to to make sure that his empire is secure is that he gathers everybody around himself. After searching for the answer to life's problems, he finally takes a look in the mirror and says, oh, there it is. There's the answer right there. I, I, I am the answer for life's problems. And now he just has to convince everybody else that he's the answer for life's problems. Hopefully there's nobody taking a look in the mirror and thinking that you're the solution. This dedication of the image turns into a dedication of false worship because he elevates himself to the position of a supreme being. And he believes that he can overturn the word that was spoken against him. God told him that your kingdom's not going to last. And he says, "Uh, we'll see about that. And basically he sets up this statue in defiance of the true God. And it's no accident that this site, many believe, is on the same site where the Tower of Babel would have been. (laughs) This kind of defiance against the God of heaven, like we'll get to heaven our own way. Nobody's going to stop us. We're all going to be together. You're not going to separate us. We're not going to be spread across the world. We're not going to do that. We're going to stand right here and build a tower up to heaven. And who's going to stand in our way? And all God has to do is look down at this puny you know, structure that they put together and says, okay, we'll see how, how much you can get done when nobody can understand anybody. You're not that, 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 that smart, okay? <laughs> you can't outsmart God. But many people are on this pursuit to think that they can outsmart the one who is the God of all wisdom and insight, right? That's the first temptation, isn't it? That you can be like God. First temptation. And how many people are still falling to that same temptation today? I can, I can do it myself. I can, I can be like God. Nebuchadnezzar's desire to be like God turns into a demand. Look at verse 4. It says, Then the herald loudly proclaimed to you, the command is given, O peoples, nations, men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. There it goes again. 
The desire turns into a demand. Now it's a demand. First it was a desire. Now I'm going to demand that this happens. And this is what desires unrestrained look like. If you want to know what unrestrained desires look like, this is it. This is it. We're, we're, we're little gods in the making. <laughs> our, our hearts are these continual, you know, idol factories like Calvin says. We don't want to respect the boundary between the creature and the creator. We're constantly applying for his job. We want his position. And Nebuchadnezzar just happened to have the political power to, to pull this off. But Daniel 3 is what's buried deep within the hearts of depraved humanity. We, we want that position. I want to be God. I, I don't want anybody. I will not have this man ruling over me. I want to be in charge. We don't want to bow to the throne. We want to be on the throne. That's the desire of the human heart. And here, Nebuchadnezzar demands universal worship through his official spokesman. Hear ye, hear ye. The command is given. O peoples, nations, men of every language. You know, here we have Nebuchadnezzar's own great commission. All peoples, all nations, all languages. You know, hear ye, hear ye. Come and bow before this image. You know that it was Nebuchadnezzar's practice to bring in the exiles from the nations that he conquered. So this assembly would have been made up of the nations around Babylon, men from Assyria, Egypt, Judah. And he proclaims this message that he wants everybody to hear. At the moment you hear this sound, everybody hit the deck, hit the floor. The National Orchestra is invited here to make this occasion even more festive. There were wind instruments like the horn and the flute. The horn was probably like an animal horn. The flute was some kind of pipe instrument. The lyre, trigon, and psaltery were all triangle-shaped string instruments. You know, the lyre was uh, uh, said to have seven strings. The trigon had four strings like a bass guitar. The psaltery may have had more. It was plucked like a harp. And then there's what's called the bagpipe, which is the most disputed out of all the instruments uh, that are here. Uh, not the same as a Scottish bagpipe, but uh, one scholar even actually argues that it might have been a percussion instrument, which, which I kind of like, you know, percussion instruments, put that in there. But what's important here is that when you hear the orchestra play, when the national orchestra gets it going, everybody hit the floor. And whoever does not bow is going to be thrown into the fire. Look at verse 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. This furnace would have been like a large oven. You know, we call it a kiln today, K-I-L-N, used for baking bricks, heating up metal until it turned into a liquid form. And this oven would have been huge, like construction-sized oven, large enough for, for like, you know, construction work. And we know this because it was large enough for four men to walk around on the inside of it. This is huge. There would have been two openings, one at the top, where material was thrown in, and one at the bottom where the material was brought out. And there would have been two openings here, and it's right there on the site. One author says that it may have been the furnace used to make the metal that was used for the giant image. I mean, you know, they got to put this image together, so they, they needed the, the oven like right there in proximity. So here you have the, the, the statue, and the, the oven is right there. The furnace is sitting right next to it. Here it is. Here's the scene. Think about it. Here's the who's who's list of Babylon from all the provinces around Babylon and Babylon itself. All the who's who is there. Statue is looming over everybody on this plane, 90 feet tall. You're just kind of like staring up at it. 
Over on the side, there's this uh, construction-sized oven. And the king's spokesman saying, whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into the furnace. It's right there. <laughs> we don't have to go far to get you to the oven. Like, it's, it's right here. That is the scene. That's the scene. And now the question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'll tell you this much. If you wait until the music plays to decide what you're going to do, you're too late. You are too late. You have to decide what you're going to do before this moment happens. You need to know who you serve before the music starts playing so that it's automatic. I I already know what my answer is. I don't have to think about my answer. (laughs) I I, I don't have to study and it's like, hey, I think we need to do a Bible study on, on, you know, what is an image? What, What is a statue? I don't, I mean... Really, what is worship? Can can we do a Bible study on that? You need to decide this ahead of time. This needs to be a conviction that's baked in, right? There's nothing to think about. Why? Exodus 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And for these three Hebrew boys, that was a conviction worth dying for. You know, from the time you wake up, walk along the way, lay down, it's just like, no, this is, this is just part of who we are. Like, this, this, is, this is who I am. This is a conviction worth dying for. This, this is a conviction worth losing my job for. This is a conviction worth being rejected for, being persecuted for. Because God means more to me than my life does. You understand that? Like, that's where it's got to be. God means more to me than my life. And I'd rather die with him than to live without him. We need to have a fear of God that's greater than a fiery furnace consuming us. God visiting me for my iniquity needs to be a greater fear than the fire consuming me. The reward of God's loving kindness needs to mean more to me than the treasures of Babylon. Whatever promotion I get, bowing the knee is not worth it. Whatever promotion is small change compared to the riches of God's loving kindness. That's that's the reward that extends beyond the grave. That's, That's what I'm after. Daniel and his friends understood that there was life beyond the grave. I hope you know that. They knew that Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Genesis chapter 5. They knew what Job said. Job 19, verse 26, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. They knew that Elijah was carried away on a chariot of fire by a whirlwind where? To heaven. (laughs) They're familiar with Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. I may die. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Even after my heart fails, my heart is still secure with God. And they knew about this kingdom that would endure forever back in chapter 2 that Daniel saw. And they knew that they would be a part of it. Actually, later on in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 13, Daniel is told, but as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again. For your allotted portion at the end of the age. They trusted in that. I'm going to be a part of that kingdom. I'm going to to rise again and I'm going to have my allotted portion 
That's not going to be taken away from me. And there's not going to be one statue that's going to like, you know, rip away one portion of that inheritance. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And the God who can grant the God worth worshiping. The kingdoms of men can't deliver on that promise. Matthew chapter 16, why don't you just flip there real quick. Matthew chapter 16, take a look at verse 26. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26, just so you can see this. Listen to what, uh, what Jesus says. Actually, I'll start further up. 24, you know I had to do that at least once. 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. If your kingdom is in this life only, you're going to lose it all. But even among the exiles of Judah, there were many who made the sorrowful exchange. Why why is it that we only hear about these three Hebrew boys instead of all the rest of them that came in? Because everybody else hit the deck. Everybody else says, hey, it's worth it. The the furnace versus, no, I'll just, just, yeah, okay, king. I'll bow, I'll bow. At the time when all the peoples back in chapter 3, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, all kinds of music, all the peoples, all the peoples, all the peoples, nations, men of every language fell down, worshiped the golden image that the king had set up. What does that mean? All the people who were there. All the people who were there, which included the nation of Judah. Those who were raised up with the law of God bowed down before an idol. That's why these three Hebrew boys stood out, because they, they refused to bow. When, when all the rest of them, all the, their friends that came in with them, they all bowed. But here we have the defiance. Look at verse 8, James chapter 3, look at verse 8. It says, for this reason at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews, literally to, to bring charges to eat pieces of. They, it's like they were, they were gnawing at them, devouring them. They brought these charges. And if, if you're with us for chapter 2, the Chaldeans uh, should be familiar to you. They were a people from the uh, southern region of Babylon. Uh, they were uh, part of the, the wise men. They were astrologers. They kept track of the movement of the stars and the comets. Uh, comets, not comets, the comets. Because they believed they could get messages from the stars. And a group of them were part of the wise men you know, who were part of the king's counselors. So these would have been the same wise men who couldn't tell the king what his dream was. Remember that? And then Daniel and his friends pray to receive the interpretation and save them. And now these same men who have been saved turn around and gnawing at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they want them to, to be killed. Talk about ingratitude. These Chaldeans are the ones who are bringing up the charges. Ungrateful. Maybe these Chaldeans were, were jealous. How, how are these Hebrew boys going to come in here and leapfrog over me? I actually belong here. I'm from southern Babylon. And now these foreigners have come in and took my position? Are you kidding me? 
No, they, they need to pay. So now motivated by jealousy, they want to make sure that the king doesn't miss what everybody else saw. Hey, don't, don't, don't miss that there were three guys who were standing over here, king. <laughs> there were three. Look at verse 9. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, oh, king, live forever. I mean, that's what the king wants to hear, right? Because he wants his kingdom to be forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, all kinds of music, blah, 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 is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And there are certain Jews, and here's their disdain for the Jews, these Jewish people whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. I can't believe that you did that. There's the jealousy. Namely, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Here it is. There's the defiance. There's the defiance. And now the king is, uh, he responds in this kind of deranged attitude. Look at verse 13. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true? <laughs> is it true? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Here it goes again. I've set it up. Can't believe that anyone would be bold enough to defy his orders. Doesn't even wait for them to answer the question. Now, if you are ready, at the moment, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Get the whole band together. Psaltery bagpipe, all the kinds of music. You must have had it memorized. Fall down and worship the image that I've made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Now, now, now at this point, you would, have, you would have hoped that somebody would have knocked some sense into him, right? Here he is standing in front of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, that should have jogged his memory. Like, these are the same guys that I appointed when I couldn't figure out the dream and Somebody was walking around in my head and told me what I was dreaming? This God who reveals mysteries and now I'm going to oppose him? You know, these are, these are the same guys. I don't, I, you don't want to mess with these guys. Right, that's what he should have been thinking. But here he's angry and his Proverbs 14.29 says, He who is quick-tempered exalts folly. He's out of control. He's completely out of control. He's lost it. Anger makes fools out of people. Anger makes fools out of people. And he can't bear the thought of his will being defied, not in front of all my friends. <laughs> I, got the whole, I got the whole kingdom here, and now you're going to defy me in front of everybody? You're embarrassing me. This is supposed to be my big day. This is Nebuchadnezzar Day. This is national holiday, Nebuchadnezzar Day. And here you go, ruining my holiday. And remember, it's his plan to immortalize his kingdom, to beat the odds, to finally crack the, the kingdom code. You know, I'm going to last forever. My kingdom's going to last forever, and this is the way to unify it, and you guys are standing in the way. I can't have a rebellion now when it's all hell the king. And listen to how deranged he sounds at this point. What God is there that's going to deliver you out of my hands? Like, who do you think you are? It's obvious who he thinks he is. He thinks he's a God. He believes himself to be on the same level. And he thinks he can force them to comply through force. And the threat of death is the only tool that he has left in his tool belt. Now, 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 now here it comes. I'm going to bring out the, the, the big guns. Now you're going to, now you're going to bow. Listen to what I'm going to do to you. Death 
sentence of death. But these young men had a fear that was greater than death itself. They had a fear of God. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they have no more that they can do. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they have no more they can do. (laughs) Who are you to fear? You're to fear the one who after death can cast you into hell. I'm I'm not going to fear the one who can just kill me. You know, Paul says, like, you're doing me a favor. You just bring me to the one who I love anyway. To live is Christ and to die is gain. <laughs> you're not gonna you're not gonna scare me with death. You, you can you can keep that to yourself. Look at what it what what they say. Look at verse 16. The position of true worship. So here we go from the false worship falling into the true worship. Look at verse 16. And I love this response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Oh Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There's there's no decision to be made because the decision's already been made. There's no need to talk about it. We're not going to have a debate here. Uh, We've already given you your answer when we refused you the first time. If you want your answer, it was when we were standing up back there. We're we're not going to do it. There's nothing more to talk about. They're not being disrespectful. They're just stating the facts. And they state this without any additional word from the Lord about what the outcome would be. They have no idea what's going to come after this. All they know is that they're not going to bow. That's all they know. And they're not uncertain about God's ability to deliver them. The uncertainty was whether or not this was God's plan. I don't know if he's going to deliver me or not. So they respond using the same structure as the king's ultimatum. In verse 15, it's like, now if you are ready to fall down and worship the image that I've made, and they respond, now if God whom we serve is able to deliver us, he will deliver us. <laughs> we, know, we know that he can deliver. We just don't know if, if he's going to choose to or not. We don't know what his plan is. We don't know what God's ready to do, but we trust him. And you're not going to get any worship from us today. And our God will either way deliver us from you. <laughs> I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul who wrote the book of Philippians. He was on the, the verge of death. He had a death threat in Rome. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, he says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul says, I know I'm going to be delivered through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And you're like, hey, Paul, that's great. You're getting out of prison. You're not going to die. But listen to what he says. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Deliverance could come either way, life or death. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. I know I'm going to be delivered. I just don't know which way. This is the same way for these Hebrew boys, right? I know I'm going to be delivered from you. <laughs> I just don't know which way it's going to happen. But I'm going to be delivered. Deliverance does not always mean that we walk out of the furnace. Deliverance sometimes means that we're consumed by the furnace and we're delivered from death to glory. To die is gain. And that's the response of true worship, isn't it? That's the response of true worship. That's what I hate so much about this whole word of faith kind of theology. Because because it gives this impression that, you know, uh, the the only way that this can turn out is that I got to be on tap. You know, that's that's what faith is. Faith is when when you walk out of the furnace. That's, That's true faith. 
What about what Job says? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And sometimes that means paying the ultimate price for your worship. Sometimes that means being put to death. The price of worship. Look at verse 19. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, apparently he was like kind of composed when he thought he was still in charge. You know, I'm going to bring out the big guns, and you guys are going to comply. And he's just kind of kind of like, uh, they don't know I'm really going to go through with it. You know, wait till I tell them. And after he told them, I'm going to put you to death, it's like, hey, it doesn't matter to us. Now he's like, what else do I do? He's throwing a tantrum. It says his facial expressions were altered toward them. What does that mean? He starts making faces at them. I can't believe you. It's like a spoiled brat. Doesn't get what he wants. It's just like, can't believe it. He gives orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Why do that? I mean, what was the point in heating it seven times? He's just out of control. I'm going to make sure they die seven times more, seven times more. Just more fuel on the fire. These guys are going to pay. He's just out of control. Making faces, throwing more fuel on the fire. It's like a fire or burn anyway. I mean, what's the difference? It's actually better to burn slower if you want to torture them. It's like, no, heat it faster, higher, more. One author speaks about how the production of metal, such as bronze, would have required the conduction of some type of furnace to achieve the temperatures necessary to smelt the ore and produce liquid metal that could be cast into shapes. The thought of being cast into such a furnace would have been terrifying in the temperatures, and these kinds of kilns would reach as high as 1,000 degrees centigrade. Some of you know that I did uh, HVAC work um, before I became a pastor, uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, for those of you who don't know what HVAC is. I did mostly commercial work, and I remember I was working in this one uh, building, and uh, I was working next to some steam pipes, and I had to get a measurement that was above a a steam pipe, and uh, happened to to brush my, my arm against the pipe. And it's like immediately my skin just melted. Just melted off, like shriveled up, melted off. And it's like, I still have the scar to this day. I mean, this is like some 20-something years ago. I still have the scar to this day. Just, just brushing up against the pipe. It's not like I, you know, kind of leaned on it. It's like just brushing up against the pipe. Instantly, my skin just melted off, shriveled up. It's like, what in the world? They, I'm told that the steam pipes were only about 500 degrees Fahrenheit, about 260 degrees Celsius. These would have been temperatures up to over 1,000 degrees. I mean, we're talking heat. Multiple times hotter. Gold melted 1,064 degrees Celsius. And we know that they had to at least get it that hot to melt the gold, right? And whatever fuel they used for their normal work, they multiplied it seven times more. Seven times more. That's, this is an inferno. And it commanded certain valiant warriors, verse 20, who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire so they can't physically get away. Not that they would have tried, but it's physically impossible now. These men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, their outer clothes, were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire so their clothes had plenty of of fuel to add to the fire. Verse 22, for this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, we have no, no idea how hot this flame was, but the men who carried them up 
were killed in the process of just trying to carry out the king's command. Just, just trying to go up the ramp or the staircase or whatever it was to get them up to the top of the furnace to throw them in. Remember, there's an opening at the bottom, opening at the top. They go up to the top to throw them in. That's where the material went in. And you get the material out of the bottom. So they, they're climbing up to get the, the, the boys in. And while they're going up and opening up this you know, kiln and throwing them in, they're dying. It, it is such a, an inferno here. So these, these, you know, crack troops that he gets, you know, the king's men, it's like they, they can't stand the heat. <laughs> you know, can't stand the heat, get out of the, the furnace, right? But here it is, they, they, they can't stand the heat. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire still tied up. And if you didn't know the end of the story, and this story ended right here, it would have still been a good ending. This would have still been a good ending if it ended right here. It would have still been a remarkable story of faith in God in the face of adversity. And they would have still been included in the hall of faith because of their trust in God. Because the outcome of your faith is in the hands of God. That's not in your hands. You're not in charge of what the outcome of your faith is. But, but, but the faith would have still been remarkable. Just by itself, if we stopped right here, this still would have been a remarkable story. Because we can't determine the results. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 11 real quick. Hebrews chapter 11. Take a look at uh, verse 32. Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 32. Love this chapter. Verse 32. It says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire. Here, here they go. Escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others, same faith, experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They, were, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. The, out, the outcome of your faith isn't your problem. The outcome of your faith isn't, isn't for you to, to decide. The results are not up to us. They would have still been included. Still been included. Sometimes we get this idea that if, you know, victorious faith is, is when, I, when I escape. No, victorious faith is when you have faith. <laughs> Look over in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Look at verse 1. It says, Now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also, but it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. For what? To put him to death? I mean, you guys like, like that, wait till you see what I do to Peter. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, 
guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. His chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. I mean, we're, we're out of here, Peter. So, so what's, what's the difference? Was, was uh, James, the brother of John, just like, you know, did he have like small faith? And Peter had great faith, you know, so that's why James died and Peter survived. No, same faith. It's just, it's just what does the Lord decide? The Lord's in charge. James died by the sword. Peter escaped the edge of the sword. But sometimes the price for true worship is death. In Oxford, England in 1555, two men, Bishops Ridley and Latimer, were burned at the stake for their faith. Bishop Latimer's last words were, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man, for we shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust by God's grace shall never be put out. It's, it's up to the Lord what happens, right? What's the prize of true worship? Back in uh, Daniel chapter 3, I'll try to speed up here. Daniel chapter 3, look at verse 24. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded, took up in haste, and he said to his high officials, Was, was, <laughs> was it not three men we cast down into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. If you remember, again, these uh, ovens were designed with an opening at the bottom so that they could see through. And as these men were tossed in the top, what they expected to see at the bottom were just three corpses falling down. That's what he's expecting to see. And as he looks through the, through the hole, he's sitting down, looking through the hole, and then all of a sudden it's like, what? Stands up, astonished, astounded. Like, what? Am I seeing this right? Is this like another vision? Like, what? Do you see what I'm seeing? Like, look in that hole. Wasn't, that, wasn't there three guys that we threw in there? What, 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 what is the meaning of this? And they're walking around. Don't miss that. They're on the loose. The only items that burn in the fire were the ropes that tied them. <laughs> and they're not in a rush to get out. <laughs> I mean, if I'm in the furnace, you know, I might think about like, hey, I'm, I'm good, right? So I can, I can leave now. <laughs> no, they're walking around in it. You know, the company on the inside is better than the company on the outside anyway. You know, we'll just keep walking around in here. Nebuchadnezzar is struggling to put what he's seeing into words. I mean, he's shook. He stood up in haste. And then he has to check with his officials. Do you see what I see? Look at verse 24. Was, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? Certainly. The best language that Nebuchadnezzar can come up with is that the fourth man in the fire is like a son of the gods. Apparently the brilliance of this fourth man in the furnace was brighter than the fire around him. And the question is, who is this fourth man? And why is he designated as the son of the gods? Is it just an angel? I don't want to take a long time on this, but we know from Scripture that sometimes an angel was more than just an angel. There were times when an angel was actually considered to be God himself. Genesis 18, there were three men who visited Abraham on their way to Sodom. Two of them were angels. Genesis 19 talks about those two who left and went into Sodom. But there was one who stayed back to visit with Abraham. 
And it says, the men turned away from there, verse 22, went into, towards Sodom, while Abraham was standing before the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh. What, what in the world? This other visitor was the Lord visiting him. Exodus 3, verse 2, we're told about the angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses from the midst of a burning bush. Exodus 3, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire. Look at that, there's fire there. In a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. But in verse 4, it says, when the Lord saw that he turned to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush saying, Moses, Moses, who is that angel of the Lord? This is God who's speaking here. The angel is more than an angel. Joshua chapter 5, the angel of the Lord appears before Joshua as he's preparing to attack Jericho and identifies himself. Joshua chapter 5, verse 15, the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. The same thing that was told to Moses when he's before the burning bush. Who is this? This is, this is an angel that's more than an angel. In Judges chapter 6, Gideon standing before this angel of the Lord and said that the Midianites would be given to him in battle. And while he's speaking to this angel, Judges 6 and verse 16, says, The Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. The Lord spoke to him. This is an angel that's more than an angel. And that's just a sample of the times that the angel of the Lord shows up in Scripture. So could it be that this angel was more than just an angel? I believe so. Could it be that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, as the one who explains the Father to us, makes visible the invisible God, was present here in the furnace? I believe so. And the earliest commentators of Daniel thought so. One of the church fathers wonders how Nebuchadnezzar recognized him and saw here a prefiguration of Christ as Son of God by the Gentiles. And again, we can't be certain because we don't have more details, but at the very least, this is a reminder to us that Jesus promises to be with us. Matthew 28, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When Paul was fearful in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, the Lord said to Paul in the night, the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? For I am with you. One commentator says, whenever his children are in the fiery furnace of trials for his name's sake, he is there. Christ never sends forth his sheep unless he goes before them. So what's the prize of, of worship? The prize is God himself. That's what the prize of worship is. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. And I believe it was the Lord himself who showed up. He was the prize of their worship. And even if you're never recognized, promoted, even if you're persecuted, even if you die for your faith, we know that there's one who will never leave you or forsake you. And just lastly, what's the, what's the proclamation of true worship? Back to Daniel chapter 3, look at verse 26. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God. Come here. Still thinks he's in charge. <laughs> then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the, the fire. You servants of the what? Most high God. What God is there that can deliver you out of my hands? The most high God. This God that they were willing to give up their lives for. They yielded up their bodies 
so as not to serve or worship any God except their own, the Most High God. That's the God that will deliver us from your hands. He's the God who can reveal mysteries. He's the God who can deliver from impossibilities. They all had a front seat to watch this one. So in verse 27, the satraps, prefects, governors, the king's officials gathered around, saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. One author points out that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not only saved from the fire, they were also saved from asphyxiation, carbon monoxide poisoning, possible toxic fumes generated by the combustion process. And this further heightens the magnitude of this spectacular miracle. And all these high officials were gathering around, you know, these high officials who gathered around for the dedication of the statue, that's what they were there for. Now they're all gathered around Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, the, the focus is shift. Forget about the statue. What, what's up with these guys? What are those? <laughs> How in the world did this happen? Not even the smell of smoke. You know, if you did any barbecuing over the, the summer, you know, you walk away from the barbecue and it's like, yeah, it still smells like, like smoke. Still smells like smoke. They didn't even have the smell of smoke. Not even the smell. Hebrews 11.34 says they, were, they quenched the power, the power of fire. What an embarrassment for Nebuchadnezzar. They don't die, they multiply. <laughs> so now rather than ridiculing the God of the Hebrews, he's forced to give the God of the Hebrews praise. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel, delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command. So now he's actually praising them for violating his command. They violated the king's command, yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. And like I said, Nebuchadnezzar, is, he's not yet at the place where he's recognizing God as the only God. I believe that comes later, but he's a step closer. He recognizes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They only worship one God, and you know what? That one God is enough. <laughs> and he defends the honor of this God with this decree. Look at verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree. You know, these decrees are just kind of flying right and left. He's always making a decree. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. Everybody's going to do this. Everybody's going to do that. Now he makes another decree. I mean, the people, like, from day to day, they had to check, what do we believe today? You know, what is Nebuchadnezzar saying today? But here it is. What, what is he making a decree about now? That any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. He, he loves doing this. Torn limb from limb, their houses reduced to rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. He at least wants to honor this God, give some kind of respect. I mean, you know, this guy can do this. I want him on my side. And then he honors God's servant. Look at verse 30. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. I mean, if the Chaldeans were upset before, I mean, they're really upset now. You know, now he's put them back into position, and now there's a decree that goes over the whole kingdom to, to say, you know, to, to, to uh, honor the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their, their names are everywhere now. Like, what in the world? Additional honor from the king. And there's so much that we could take away from this passage. But the top question that you should be asking yourself is, who is worthy of my worship? This, this is a worship war. Somebody is going to be on that pedestal, okay? Somebody's going to be on the pedestal. And who is it going to be? Who will you place there? Is it going to be you? 
Is it going to be the person that you think is going to give you benefits? Or the person who makes the most threats? Is it going to be the government? Is it going to be your job? Who's on that pedestal that's like number one? The message of, of Daniel is that there's only one God who belongs on the pedestal. There's only one God to praise. Do you understand that we need to value our integrity more than our lives? Standing up in the midst of adversity is greater than your life. John Knox was, uh, uh, said that he, he, he feared no man because he feared only God. This, that's the kind of people that we, we need to be. We need to, to fear our God. And do you have a short-term memory like Nebuchadnezzar? Like a, a traveler who gets out of the storm temporarily only to go right back in again to follow your course of sin? Or when you see the, the God who delivers, the God who reveals mysteries, is it like, okay, that's enough. I don't need to see anymore. <laughs> like, I'm not going to continue down this course knowing that this is the God that needs to be worshipped. And do you recognize that God joins you in what he calls you to go through? <laughs> Lo, I am with you. I am with you. Who, who was the God who was right there? It was, who was the prize of worship? The God was right there. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this word. Father, we thank you for the faith, Lord, that we've seen here and just the example that it is that there is only one God to worship. There's only one God who deserves it. There's only, only one God that we bow before. There's only one God who is supreme. And Father, we're thankful that we've come to know who that one God is through the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for our Savior who promises to, to be with us, to never leave us, to never forsake us. Uh, so Father, I pray that uh, we would leave here, Lord, with our, our hearts uh, dedicated, uh, even afresh to you. My uh, Lord, that uh, whatever we may find ourselves in this week, Oh, Lord, that it wouldn't even be a thought uh, if it comes to compromise, uh, because we know who we've believed. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.